Um, well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming along to this um, colloquium roundtable on contested minorities in the new Europe. Um, I'm, Sam, I'm Dr. Samuel Foster. Uh, I'm currently a visiting fellow at the University of East Anglia and visiting scholar at UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London. Elena? Uh, and, and I'm Elena Balko, I'm a post, uh, I'm a Liverpool Early Career Fellow at uh, Bergberg University of London. And together with Sam, we are co-convener of, of the Basis Study Group for Minority History. Okay. And yeah, and so just, to, I'm just this is just going to be a brief introduction to the themes um, and the and what this uh, round table is originally based on. And um, also thank you again to the Institute for agreeing to, for inviting us and hosting us as well. Um, so the um, so contested minorities in the new Europe itself was, is what we could probably best describe as the study group's prelude conference. So the study group itself was only established in May 2020, um, although this was already um, an idea that was floating around um, at the time. Uh, Elena and I had had been discussing this before beforehand. Um, and the study group itself built on many of the um, ideas and debates and um, issues that arose from this conference. The conference itself took place at um, Birkbeck College at the University of London from the 1st to the 2nd of June 2019. Um, it brought in a whole range of scholars from across Europe, so and not just the UK or Germany, um, but across the, really across Europe in general, um, some of whom you will be meeting today at this round table. Um, the actual event itself comprised seven um, panels with two keynotes, um, and again, spread over the two days. And the key theme of the conference, I would say, would be to um, look, would be to, would be to explore various avenues of inquiry concerning um, minorities in Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe during the interwar period, so roughly 1918 to 1939, but from what we often call a bottom-up perspective. So in more general history and historiography, things are typically follow a top-down perspective, usually from the vantage point of political or intellectual elites, um, but we were more interested again in not necessarily um, reconstructing the experiences of, say, your everyday man or woman in the street, but sort of trying to bring our understanding a little bit closer to the lives of ordinary people and how these monumental developments that took place in this in these regions actually impinged on everyday people's lives. Just a little. Uh, Following the conference itself, um, six of our papers were then published as part of a special issue of the journal National Identities, of which there is a link to, you can, there is a link here. Um, of course, I, we of course be happy to share this um, following the session. Um, and just to run through the authors and the um, contents of the journal itself, um, this included a special introductory article by Elena and myself, um, Contested Minorities of the New Europe, National Identities in Eastern and Southeastern Europe. Again, just giving a broad historiographical outline, um, highlighting some of the key themes that were explored in the conference. Anka Filopovici, um, who is based at the Institute for Research on National Mi Minorities in, in Cluj in Romania. Um, was one, was one of was one of our contributors. Um, she looking she was looking at faith um, at the uh, Romanianization and the role of youth organisations, particularly in late interwar Romania. We also had Mart Kulkep, who unfortunately couldn't join us today. He's based at the University College London, um, looking at the politics of Estonia's Swedish minority during this period. Seppi Mota. Uh, from the Sapienza University of Rome, um, again looking at um, the reactions and 
political responses of Transylvania's Hungarian, um, Hungarian minority in the period immediately following the unification of Transylvania with the Kingdom of Romania. Uh, Petru Negura um, from at the Free International University of Moldova, again, looking at the role of education and nation building, um, offering a, comp a, comp a comparison between um, Romania and Soviet peripheries, particularly the, the regions of Bessarabia and Transnistria. Um, Stefan Stuck, who unfortunately um, also wasn't able to be here today. Um, he's an independent scholar now. Uh, again, a slightly smaller scale case study on the Polish-Ukrainian bulletin in Pilutski's Poland and the idea of spaces for, and forums for political and artistic expression in what was ostensibly an authoritarian state, one of Europe's first authoritarian, interwar Europe's first authoritarian state, states. And finally, Christopher Wend, um, who, who's now based at the European University Institute, um, who, whose article looks at the um, German, the formation of German national identity or some variation of German national identity in the Banat region um, of Romania. Um, okay, that's, so that's pretty much my part, my part then. We can now, okay, so I'll now hand you over to Elena. Uh, so, so really we shall uh, hand over to our uh, presenters just to explain uh, very briefly the research that um, lay the foundation for their articles before we switch to a more uh, general discussion. Um, so Anka, um, you, you have your five to seven minutes. Uh, thank you, Elena. Thank you, Sam. I'm very happy to be with all of you here today. Uh, so my, my paper um, uh, was dealing with a youth organization called Straja Tsari, which is the Sentinel of the Motherland in English. I was uh, researching uh, the monograph of this organization for a while. And um, the specific interest in, in this topic started um, with a picture, the topic of, of the paper from National Identities. And it was a picture that I found in an online archive from Bukovina. And it represented a um, young Jew wearing the Sentinel uniform and performing the Sentinel salute with the outstretched arm which is a Roman salute, but was um, sometimes correlated with the Nazi salute. And the question that struck was, uh, what were Jews and minorities doing in a national patriotic organization like uh, Straja Tsari? So the focus of the paper was on the relation of this um, organization created by King Carl II in 1934, uh, the relation of this organization with minorities and especially with Jews. And I argued that this instrument for controlling uh, youth lacked any mechanism for integrating minorities, though every youngster had to join uh, the Sentinel of the Motherland, no matter the uh, ethnicity, at least until June 1940. Um, just to, to uh, reveal some important uh, points of the paper, um, the organization followed closely the formal model of fascist opera Nazionale Balila in Italy and Hitler Jungen in Germany, but was also indebted to scouting, uh, while actually being in trend with the worldwide regimenting of youngsters in times of crisis. But what should uh, must be emphasized is the fact that the king's regime was not fascist, and even if after he introduced the dictatorship in 1938, Romania was still um, enjoying a limited degree of political freedom. So since its creation, this organization stated that the organization was uh, addressed to all Romanian citizens. And this was one of the main differences between the Sentinel of the Motherland and other institutions like Hitler Jugend. And it was designed like that out of uh, foreign policy strategies as the king aimed for political support from, from his traditional allies from England and France. And he was also under the pressure of the League of Nations who was um, assaulted with petitions from international bodies in favor of uh, minorities. So um, Straja Tsari was building national solidarity by overruling diversity. And the main points in um, the paper is 
the fact that uh, citizenship was used um, as a term that was suggesting the aim for integration, but the formula was rather recalling the scouting openness to diversity because the policies of romanization haven't really been designed to raise the fidelity of the minorities. So the organization had rather a dissimulated integrative tendency. Uh, another important point is the fact that the Christian Romanian element prevailed as Romanianness was defined on ethnocultural terms. So any religious or ethnic distinctiveness was apparently ignored. The organization worked as a channel of transnational connection between the royal dictatorship and other fascist regimes, although many members of uh, the organization were Jews. And actually the Jews were uh, the main focus of the paper because they were the non-Christian population received as the absolute other, incapable of integration, while at the same time uh, being perceived as an unwanted competitor on the social and economic arena. I uh, used several memoirs of former Jewish members and the main attitudes that can be depicted uh, refer to the fact that for some youngsters, the Sentinel of the Motherland was attractive for its parades and its paramilitary atmosphere. Other felt rejected when they faced too much, when they showed too much enthusiasm or uh, desire to integrate while for others, it was an impulse to create alternative islands of uh, identity by joining youth uh, movements, Jewish youth movements like the Zionist ones. So what the Sentinel of the Motherland as a case study offers is in fact a reflection on how the process of assimilation worked during the interwar decades. And uh, the process was ambiguous and duplicitous, sometimes in between the lines, and it was also hardening oppositional identities under the impression of uh, integration. Thank you. Thank you, Anka. Um, Giuseppe, uh, if you could perhaps continue. Thank you very much. So first of all, congratulations for to all and to the main organizers for conducting such an interesting research and such a constant and fruitful activity among scholars. Um, my contribution, my article, uh, partially derived from my personal experience of study and research in Romania. So first of all, by the fact that I was used to confront with regionalists in places like Italy or Spain, where I studied as well, and when I spent some time in Romania, in Transylvania specifically, I was quite surprised by understanding that regionalism was not uh, absolutely accepted or considered as a political option. So naturally my research and the field of uh, Romanian history uh, began included also this particular aspect. And in particular, what got my interest since the beginning was the doctrine of Transylvanism. That was um, one of the different responses that uh, Magyar intellectuals adopted after the union uh, of Transylvania with uh, Romania uh, at the end of 1918. Basically, starting from Transylvanism, and in this case, I would like to thank Olena and Sam as well, because they contributed to enlarge and the, the vision that I had of the, that particular phenomenon and to put it into a more comprehensive um, context. So um, I analyzed Transylvanism as one of the different options that the Magyar communities uh, uh, gave to this very important historical momentum. In the article and the research, I um, tried to define some main categories, which of course included uh, those who preserved um, in, a, in an orthodox way the links with Budapest, with the whole Hungary, and the idea that uh, the new reality was totally to be refused. Those, on the contrary, that try 
somehow to adapt and um, follow, began a path of integration. For example, it was interesting to, <coughs> to have a look at the journals or uh, publications of the Magyar communities who, uh, which used Romanian as the language of communication in order to uh, use the language, the common language, which was Romanian, and the use of this language, uh, in my opinion, indirectly meant uh, an acceptance of that state of things in order to persuade the Romanian public opinion of their sincerity or their loyalty as Romanian citizens of Hungarian identity. At the same time, a similar approach uh, was experienced also by uh, Transylvanian Romanians, but was it, it was called localismo creator, but was interpreted as something different. And basically, the idea that an integration of uh, Hungarians, Transylvania Hungarians in Romania could be possible had inspired the young generations of intellectuals, many priests, for example, after 1918. It gave birth to many interesting um, cultural discussions and debates, which somehow I thought that they resembled um, the debates that animated Russian cultural context during the 19th century. What to do in that particular moment? What to do to change, to make life possible into the new uh, context of the Romanian state? But, and um, under this point of view, I agree with uh, uh, Anka's conclusions. At the end, exactly as what happened with the movement Strajanzari, these attempts of uh, uniting, mixing different uh, national identities into a multicultural regional scheme uh, were not successful. Clearly, the, there were uh, multiple uh, causes to explain these uh, uh, this clash. The uh, predominance of an ethno-national vision and interpretation of ethnicity and identity, of course. The political links, respectively with Budapest and Bucharest, that proved to be stronger than uh, the uh, regional sentiments and the idea of belonging to a region more to than a nation. And one of my conclusion is that uh, uh, the failure of this very ambitious experiment uh, had to be placed, of course, in the overall context of increasing nationalism, but also in more in, in local dimensions. That is to say that I argue that finally this movement, the Transylvanism and other local regional interpretations of Magyarism and multiculturalism that developed in Transylvania failed even because they uh, were not successful in providing a serious political option and remain at the level of cultural suggestions, cultural debates. And this was also one of the elements that I think is useful to understand the particular reality of Transylvania and the uh, particular, special nature of Transylvanian regionalism, which had never developed seriously during the whole of the 20th century, notwithstanding many more or less uh, serious attempts. So thanks, I hope I, more or less, I, I hope I briefly explain what was the, the main idea and the content of the research. Thank you once again very much. Thank you, Giuseppe. Uh, now we are moving to Patro. Yeah. 
Thank you, Elena. And um, so I, I will briefly present my uh, my paper in this special issue. And thank, uh, th th thanks a lot to Elena and Sam for this opportunity to publish in this wonderful uh, uh, issue. Uh, so my paper examines the, the, the public primary education of ethnic minorities and the local responses to schooling in rural areas in two neighboring regions, Bessarabia and Transnistria during the interwar period. So um, under the Romanian and accordingly Soviet administration. After the separation of these region, regions from the Russian empire, the, the, the two countries, Soviet Union and Romania were considered ideologically and politically antagonistic in that period. So they were in a, something like a quite difficult relationship during the interwar period. And Bessarabia, by the way, was one of the objects of this rivalry. Um, the Soviet authorities created the Moldovan Soviet Socialist, Socialist Autonomous Republic in Transnistria um, for, for an external policy reason, I mean, in order to export the Bolshevik revolution abroad and especially towards uh, Romania and the Balkans. Yeah. So, uh, so in, in these two uh, regions, um, the Soviet Union and Romania applied quite ambitious uh, nationalizing, but also uh, schooling policies. Uh, at, at the same, and that there is a, a number of, of, of similarities between these two regions and how the, the state, these this two state authorities applied different in, uh, policy in order to achieve uh, mass schooling and say, at the same time nation building. But at the, at the same time, I'm looking at the differences and the, the two state had quite, quite different strategies in order to, to, to nationalize and to integrate uh, the, the, the local policy, uh, the local population and especially the minority um, uh, groups. Um, in Soviet Transnistria, so the, Romania had a more like, so to say, classical um, nationalizing approach, uh, aiming at at promoting the titular, so to say, uh, national group, the Romanians or Moldovans, they were called themselves, uh, and. Uh, whereas in the Soviet Transnistria during the, the same period, schooling was part of a more complex nationalizing policy aiming, aiming at creating national republics and non-territorial ethnic minorities within a unitary Soviet state. But both in Bessarabia and Transnistria, the implementation of mass schooling faced many difficulties and encountered different forms and degrees of resistance from the local population. So my paper looks at these uh, various you know, responses uh, and, and, and uh, manifestations of resistance uh, from on behalf of the, of the local population towards the schooling and nationalizing policies. Um, just uh, theoretically, to, to we can say that the the Tarazaras and Peter Judson and others' uh, concept of national indifference could be uh, useful in this case. But at the same, but at the same time, I look beyond this uh, this the, uh, the this concept in the sense that I am interested more in the in in, the, in various forms of 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 a more active responses like uh, resistance re uh, of passive and sometimes active forms of resistance to, uh, to this um, uh, schooling and um, nationalizing projects. Well, um, so I'm trying to compare these uh, regions, but I'm also look at the at the various entanglements between these two regions and and the policies applied by the by these two states, uh, Soviet Union and and Romania. As I said at the, the beginning, it 
they were in a quite difficult uh, rival relationship uh, during the interwar uh, period for political and also territorial reasons. And so uh, there was something like um, at least a symbolic competition between these two, uh, between these two states and uh, which uh, was reflected in the policies applied in these two um, border areas, like this Arabia and uh, Transnistria. Well, um, I would say that um, th there is, uh, of course, similarities, but also uh, uh, differences. Uh, for, for instance, uh, the uh, Soviet Union was much more, the Soviet authorities watch much more proactive in applying the uh, schooling um, policies and achieved quite quickly the mass uh, schooling in the in the late 20s early 30s but at the same time it applied quite an inconsistent and uh, uh, brought up um, nationalizing policy just to to give an example during the 20s and 30s in the uh, in uh, in Soviet Transnistria, basically in this Moldovan Autonomous Republic, there were four different, you know, uh, linguistic and national nationalizing, you know, policies uh, that contradicted each other. So uh, they, they, they the Soviets applied quite an uh, and um, but at the same time um, the Romanian authorities, which were much less, so to say um well active in uh, in achieving the schooling uh, during the during the same period and uh, as, as a result in the in the late uh, 30s there were almost half of the uh, pupils population uh, from the region were were still uh, unschooled so um, um So, um, well, both states embraced a modern mobilizing model, just to, to quote uh, Khalid. Uh, so, uh, and even applied different, you know, discriminatory policies, limiting the rights to education uh, in the mother tongue for some ethnic minorities in the late 30s for, you know, uh, uh, different reasons and including uh, as a response to the perceived threat from abroad, and uh, well, but this and uh, they adopted a centralized administrative model and a defensive strategy with the uh, the neighboring uh, countries. Um, but I would say that in both in both contexts, resistance to schooling and nationalizing policies by the local population opposed this process of social and national homogenization to defend its local interests and loyalties. When this resistance was perceived by the state apparatus as a threat to the general policy, policy of political cohesion and nation building, the soft policies of integration through schooling and nationalizing policies were replaced by repressive strategies and it, it is what we see at the end of the 30s and early 40s yeah this is pretty all i wanted to, to say about my paper thank you patro and uh, finally um chris uh, you have your five minutes uh, to tell I us about your research great thank you um i actually have a i have a few images too which i'll try to Share. Let's see. Um, are you able to see the see the screen? Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'll start by also expressing my thanks um, to Olena and Sam. Um, for the conference and for having uh, allowing me to be part of this uh, community that has persisted past that. And um, so I'll briefly explain the kind of the main points of my paper. And this was uh, what I was looking at here was really um, 
how a discourse on Germanness or what it meant to be German um, was shaped uh, in the in the Banat among the population that identified and was identified as Swabians from the late 19th century, so from uh, Habsburg Hungary through the uh, late 1930s, as when the state was uh, when this area was part of the state of Romania. Um, largely focusing on the interwar period in my own empirical research and focusing on how this, what I look at, I look at Germanness as a sort of spectrum and how this spectrum was drawn and then more or less narrowed by the end of this uh, period. And um, I myself was drawn to this topic for a number of reasons. Um, I think if uh, anyone who's looked at this region, uh, we'll find it interesting for its, its diversity. Um, it was known as a melting pot of Habsburg Hungary. This is an attempt at an ethnographic map from the, uh, 1855. So you can see the different cross hatchings of color here that are meant to you know, identify different language groups. Um, and although it was uh, known as a, as a breadbasket as well for all the grain production, it also had um, quite cosmopolitan urban centers. So Temeswar, Timisoara uh, among these. And it had a, a German speaking population among Romanian speakers, uh, uh, Serbian speakers, Hungarian speakers, of course. Um, and this German population was also um, played a prominent role in the region. And what really then drew me to this case, this kind of formulation of Germanness, was that as I, as far as I saw it, this sort of um, uh, emergence and shaping of a national movement um, was so obviously constructed. It was so obvious in how there was a lot of work done in making the movement exist in the first place and how obvious it, it was that it was internally contested. And one example that I always like is um, comes from, once again, this is the late 19th century, but after the founding of the German School Association um, in 1881 in the Banat, uh, there are protests both for and against um, receiving aid for German language education. So protests by German speaking communities for and against uh, basically this German School Association, which reflects really the fact that the, uh, the elite of the Swabian population had essentially was very open to Hungarian culture and a large part of it had actually uh, assimilated more or less into Hungarian uh, speaking society and was supportive of uh, the idea of a unitary Hungarian nation state. Um, and so then what I ultimately do is I look at uh, essentially through different press and newspaper sources, I look at how this uh, dominant discourse on Germanness shifted across the period. And briefly, um, just to give a broad overview, I look at how after the First World War, uh, this discourse on Germanness became uncoupled from any sort of um, Hungarian belonging and became more abstract in a national sense. But still across, especially across the 1920s, the region uh, as a locus of certain traditions and experiences was still quite important in this process of forming uh, uh, a German minority community. Um, and it, it was really a kind of media, um, a mediator, you could call it. And then there was only really the emergence of a more uh, dominant homogen homogeneously German uh, national discourse, which also included some stricter biological qualifications that emerged uh, later in the interwar period, so by the late 1930s. So in a, on a, once again, on a very rough, in a very rough sense, you could say that um, this discourse went from more of a Hungarian German, uh, Hungarian German as a, as a, um, a moniker of expression to German, German Swabian to Romanian German. Although, of course, this process was never uh, complete in any sense, and especially the Romanian, Romanian German part of it was quite contested. Um, but of course, beyond uh, tracing how this dominant discourse was drawn and, and shaped, I'm trying to look at the dynamics, um, the dynamics of 
how it, why it changed, how it changed, who was doing the shaping of it. And so I think I tried to make essentially three points. And the first is has to do with the intensification or radicalization, you could say, of nationalist discourse and its permeation of society. And so from looking at these different press sources, what seemed to be clear is that it wasn't necessarily that new nationalist activists uh, were able to emerge who seized political control and shaped um, and dictated a sharper discourse on Germanists, but rather that it was a conservative political elite who really held from the um, old imperial days, um, but who was still dominant in this interwar period, who uh, co-opted a lot of the um, sharper tones of this um, of these more radical national activists, but it was really their co-option of these stronger discursive claims that shifted the spectrum on, on Germanness. Um, and then eventually legitimated these younger and more radical challenges. Um, the second I would, and sorry, this is a, just a picture of Augustine Pacha, who was the apostolic administrator at the time and an important conservative figure. Um, going forward. The second I, I think is this kind of, I talk about a relationship between politics and culture in pushing forward this discourse on Germanness. And so um, I see these two as working conjunction where claims to political legitimacy uh, that were made in essentially representing German interests um, was accompanied by uh, waves of cultural production. And you can see this very clearly in the early 1920s um, when these German uh, Swabian uh, minority political institutions are being developed. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of work going into talking about what it actually means to be German through um, uh, amateur research. Um, so writing histories and this more celebratory um, festive culture. And here you have probably the, the high point of this culture, which is the 200th year uh, anniversary celebration of German settlement in the Banat in Timisoara on, in 1923. And then the final point that um, I bring up and that I want to make, which is fairly obvious, is that the greatest uh, discursive shifts came in moments of distinct change. So after the First World War for one, and then uh, I would say also with the Great Depression and the rise of the Nazi regime as another one. And so these were moments of you know, upheaval, but there are also moments of opportunity um, for those who wanted to, who sought to affect discursive change. But at the same time, I think it also shines a light on how this minority community, um, which was a minority in becoming, was very much also in, uh, should be seen in relationship to other communities um, and institutions. So of course, um, other German speaking uh, minority communities within Romania, but also um, the Romanian state itself. And then of course, um, if uh, the, the German state. And so how I think this um, shows how impulses uh, and changes that arrived from outside of this, what is often presented as a very internally you know, bound community, um, were also uh, very determinative in shaping this discourse uh, on Germanists among the Swabians. Um, and so uh, with that, I think I will stop. So thank you. Thank you, Chris, and thank you everyone for your uh, wonderful research and, and, and these brilliant um, chat summaries. Uh, so uh, we'd like uh, now to use our opportunity as, as moderators to ask a few questions and a few perhaps more general question, uh, questions on the issue, on the region. Um, and then um, perhaps I would ask those of you who would like to respond to this particular question just to, to, to raise your hand so we could see uh, you know, like kind of who's willing instead of just waiting for answers. Um, so I'd like to uh, start with a um, question specific to perhaps Romania. Um, it is interesting, it occurred to me when we started preparing for this roundtable that 
four out of, out of six articles in our special issue focus on the minority experiences in interwar Romania. Um, is there anything specific about Romanian politics during the period that makes it such an interesting case study for researchers? Can we speak of a particular Romanian response to the so-called minority problem in Eastern and Southeastern Europe? So, Anka, yeah, perhaps you could also use the function raise your hand so we can just okay. see, you know, who wants to mm -hmm. respond. But I saw you, Anka, so yeah, go ahead. Okay. And identify in any way that you'd like to respond to, to this question, so yeah, we just know. Sorry. Thank you. Um, well, I will answer this question as a Romanian scholar interested in Romanian history, and I'm sure my non-Romanian colleagues will probably have their uh, own arguments. Um, I, will, I will just want to uh, point out some of the specificities that make Romania an interesting uh, case study. And I think one of them is the fact that uh, minorities here come from uh, all the three defunct empires. And um, these populations bring their own legacies, which were pretty difficult to address uh, while all the efforts were channeled uh, to unification and uh, building the nation. Uh, in interwar Romania, there were over 20 minorities, and some of them had a large share on certain regions and in urban area and in certain economic and social sectors. And this uh, brings another uh, specific point, which is the educational and social gap that existed between certain minorities and Romanians um, in the context of an agrarian country where uh, almost 80% of the population lived in rural area and where uh, half of the population was illiterate. So uh, a massive accent should be placed on the incapacity of the Romanian parties and on policies, no matter the political color, to address uh, the social and economic problems of the uh, state uh, this generating the need for scapegoats that were usually found among uh, minorities. And of course, um, a certain specificity is the fact that uh, Romania had a rural archaic traditional culture that was dominating the society, a society that was um, associating modernization with something conflicting uh, uh, national with the national identity, um, was associating uh, also with minorities that were perceived as otherness and, and foreignness. All countries in the region had nationalizing policies, but I, I think Romanianization was just not suited for a smooth integration of minorities, but rather for, for assimilation and, and rejection. Thank you. Would anyone else like to comment? May I? Giuseppe. Ah, possibly another, I think, important factor is that Romania is the conjunction between the East and the West. So through the, the whole history of this country, many different um, influences have combined and gave birth to a very interesting country with very different uh, regions where, for example, it's one of the few countries where it is possible to see a Gothic church of the <coughs> Renaissance, the uh, 15th century, side by side with an Orthodox church <coughs> built in the 20s or so many different influences, even under the aesthetic architecture, uh, cultural point of view that curiously made many of the regions of Romania particularly interesting, uh, especially for a Western uh, citizen from Italy like me. So clearly my perspective is conditioned also by the fact that I'm not a Romanian native, but I had the personal experience there and I, I've been interested in Romania also because I wanted to deepen knowledge about a place where I was living and when I had an important experience for my career. Uh, I might only add, I mean, I, I, I think uh, Anka and Giuseppe um, pretty much uh, especially Anka's at, at the beginning pretty much nailed what, what 
um, I would, uh, the main points that I would say, I mean, as far as dealing with these, this tripart imperial legacy and, and the traditions that come with it. Um, and then this concern of kind of um, developing a more Romanian middle, middle class. Um, uh, I'm thinking, I guess, yes, more of the, from my knowledge, more of the Western areas, Transylvanian areas. But I think something else that is sort of interesting to think about is that it can be hard to talk about, you know, a, also a, a Romanian um, response to minorities as well, partly because part of the whole problems of, integ of integration was not just about minorities, but about integrating different people who also had very much, very different conceptions of, uh, you know, what it meant to be Romanian as well. Um, and, uh, and then also had, you know, very different legal, um, legal traditions, uh, you know, economic structures, social structures um, across all these different parts that were integrated into the, uh, into the, the interwar kingdom of Romania. And then I think, um, so you can look at it too from this kind of uh, perspective of how did Bucharest perhaps see the, the, its minorities and then also how did, um, how did local actors deal with those who were perceived to be minorities. And I think that's also an especially um, interesting route to, you know, to pursue further, further research. Um, thank you. Um, so uh, moving now beyond Romania's borders, uh, how important do you think is the comparative perspective in the study of minorities' experiences in Central and Eastern Europe? Can we speak of some common concerns and responses across the region? Yep, Giuseppe, uh, Petru. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thank you uh, for, for, for the question. And um, well, I, I think that Romania is particularly um, well, um, uh, fruitful in, in doing different kinds of, of comparative approaches. And uh, I would say that in my case, I tried to compare, for instance, a Romanian province to a, a Soviet uh, autonomous republic, to, so to two uh, border um, areas. But it is also possible to make various, you know, internal, internal comparative studies in, uh, within uh, Romania. As uh, Angus uh, just said, uh, well, uh, after 1918, you know, the uh, um, Romania uh, had to integrate uh, three, well, various regions that broke up from, uh, from uh, different empires and uh, that had quite different and uh, schooling and nation building uh, policies. And so, uh, well, in, in, in a way, uh, Romania, like, like Poland and perhaps other, other state in the interwar period were something like little empires, as someone said. And so, well, because they had to, to handle uh, and to deal with all these differences between regions and also between the, uh, the rural population and the urban population, because the, the cities was, were largely uh, populated by, uh, by so-called uh, uh, national ethnic uh, minorities and so on and so forth. Uh, so, uh, but I, I, I would say that it is also uh, important to look at the uh, entanglements between between these all these regions, uh, and to look at the common, if you want, uh, interwar conjecture to, uh, to to quote Stephen Kotkin. So it is it is something like a common uh, well pattern to to, to which. Um, well, Romania and all these, you know, regions uh, um, belonged to. So it's uh, it's uh, well. But and 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 my my last point is that uh, all these regions that came out from various, you know, uh, state settings and empires, 
also created something like a long-lasting impact. And it's um, also interesting at look at, at looking at to, to look at these uh, uh, regions and difference between them, and uh, as as a kind of natural experiment and and looking at how, for instance, uh, it created something like a path dependency effects. And there is there are various interesting studies. Uh, well, analyzing the differences between various, uh, for instance, partitions in, in Poland or regions in Romania in terms of schooling achievement and, uh, well, the national belonging and so on and so forth because of all these imperial, if you want, legacies. So, well, yeah, this is uh, what I wanted to, to point out. Thank you, Chris. Chris, you got something to add? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, just uh, shortly. I'm, I mean, I think uh, in agreeing with Petro, but uh, I, and I definitely see that one, one can speak about these sort of common pathways or dynamics with a sort of diversity of experiences that once again comes from, I think a lot of it comes from then the, the place that various communities already had within these different imperial structures. But I guess the thing that every, uh, almost every community is equipped with, um, so both communities that would style themselves and were styled as minorities and also the more titular nationalities is this kind of common language of minority rights um, and the language of national self-determination. So I think in many respects too, that gave, it sort of gave a framework um, that was available to different groups in order to make claims. And that's something that you can definitely see. Um, I mean, that arises, that gives rise to a lot of different minority claims, but also then for national states, I mean, the right to national self-determination is also something that gives rise to the right to nationalize. Um, and so then you combine that with these different imperial legacies. And I think as, yeah, as Petru said, you kind of have um, certain pathways, but based upon the different combination of these factors, you get different results in the end. So, um, yeah, I think you could you could end up kind of grouping um, a lot of these individual experiences or clustering them into into sorts of uh, different uh, uh, different groups. Uh, but it, I would say it comes down to these kinds of. Uh, common language for playmaking and imperial legacies, among other things. Okay, so just um, moving on to us and expanding the um, historical and, in some respects, geographical scope a bit. Um, I'd just like to know how far do these interwar minority questions, um, again, thinking specifically in the context of um, the Kingdom of Romania, and to a certain degree in Petru's case, the territories that would become Soviet Moldova, um, represent a continuation of changes that were really already taking place before the First World War. I mean, um, a number of your responses particularly have already highlighted that this was probably, uh, that this was, these, these, these issues didn't just spring out of nowhere. Um, and also, just I'd also wonder what the uh, panel thinks. What what sort of role did the First World War itself have in this in these processes as well? I mean, it's often quite it's often quite quick to be overlooked in a lot of historiography or forgotten or largely sort of left behind. So I just wondered if you could kind of maybe weigh in on that point as well. Well, if I can just try to give you my opinion, <clears throat> I think that war was essential because it was the maybe the final point of a long historical process, which was incredibly accelerated during the years of war. And uh, that's I think this has been proven in some studies, for example, um, about the letters that soldiers wrote to the family, to the relatives during the war. 
and uh, literary analysis. I've read once from a professor of the University of Cluj, argued that uh, the, the, the feelings that were just sketched and imagined were not so apparent in 1914, grew stronger and were clearer at the end of the war. That is to say that the war uh, accelerated the process gradual and <laughs> progressive process of nationalizing identities and concentrated in those four years, uh, agreed, it, it, it gave uh, an important role to this historical process. And then clearly the, uh, the, the fate and the end of the war, the fact that the countries were divided between victors and vanquished powers, with the uh, subsequent decisions that the peace conference adopted for many regions clearly changed the situation. I don't know if many people in 1914 could foresee or could think it was soon that regions such as Transylvania were to be united with Romania. But if it was not possible, it was, if it was far from being possible in 1914, it was more than possible just four years later. There is such a rapid change in international politics, I think that could have not be possible without the conflict. So this is why I think is very relevant. Anka? Yes, I, I have the same perspective as uh, Giuseppe. I think the war itself was uh, rather the change. And uh, in short, um, at least concerning two uh, main aspects, the fact that this new geopolitical uh, order brought the emancipation of Jews in Romania, Jews being here the last uh, group, the last uh, minority in Europe to receive uh, the citizenship of the state. And another novelty was um, all these populations coming from, from the new territories that joined the, the country. So definitely the war uh, had a huge impact, um, even if of course many processes had roots before uh, 1914. Thank you. Yeah, and just, just to follow up on my um, colleagues, um, um well um uh, perspectives i would i would say that yeah before the uh, before the, uh, the, the the this great uh, nation nationalizing states appear there were the nationalizing empire in the 19th century and they uh, so they already created the main uh, the main nationalizing policies and schooling policies so uh, so that the the nations the nationalizing state states like Romania and Poland and others uh, just replicated these policies for the one in the, in the interwar period. So, well, uh, of course, and, uh, um, that there are some specificities and some reverse of the, of the balance of power between different groups and elites and so on and so forth, but the stake remained the same as to, to, to create a uh, um, homogenized and uh, cohesive, so to say, society uh, in the uh, and and the, and the modern and the modern state. And just also to complete my my colleague's uh, statements is that uh, well, they uh, as as Peter Holquist and Eric Lore um, showed on the case of Russia and the Soviet Union in the. Uh, uh, early 20s is that the uh, and late tens is that the 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 the, the world war one the first world uh, war uh, very much um, marked the the so so called totalitarian policies uh, applied during the uh, during the interwar period by by various uh, by various states and including uh, Russia. Soviet Russia and later uh, Soviet uh, Union, like in terms of uh, 
of uh, population policies, uh, well, minority policies, and, uh, and especially in this, I would say, hard kinds of, of policies, to, for instance, uh, well, removal are ethnic of various you know, uh, groups from, from the uh, territories or ethnic cleansing and so, so on and so forth. So, um, uh, well, it, this, this, um, this experience of, of the World War I was uh, really, how to say, uh, um, important, I mean, in, uh, for, the, for the policies applied later by, by, um, by, the, by the states, including Romania, Poland, and others. Thank you. And um, finally, um, just from me, when we explore these minority questions, um, there seems to still be something of a tendency um, in historiography of the discussion to gravitate more towards what's often called what political scientists might often call the center rather than the so-called peripheries. Um, when we think about this in the context of countries like the Kingdom of Romania, um, are we ultimately discussing what was, in a sense, in, a, in essence, the, um, the the growing role of a centralizing state and its impact over ordinary people's lives, and not just minor the lives of minorities, but the lives of the general citizenry? Petro. Well, I, I did not Sorry, raise, hand raise my hand, but well, I think Giuseppe wants to. Uh, no, I was wondering about the the ex the question. What do you exactly mean? So, if you can better specify in order to. Let me understand. Yes, I just, just sorry, just to clarify, what I meant was um, when we're talking, when we're looking at minority questions in general, not just in the context of Romania, but in the case of many of these um, Central and Eastern European interwar states, um, are we? I mean, is this are, are, is the the question of minorities? Is it something? Does it sort of stand out as a separate issue on its own? Or can it be sort of considered um, sort of indicative more of the growing presence of the state within people's lives in general? Um, is the state, is this indicative of the state of the state, um, be it through the form of greater, you know, um, yeah, greater state officialdom or sort of great or law or in a legal sense? Is that more, is that sort of, is this sort of, is that what, is that sort of, yeah, does do minority issues represent, yeah? this sort of growing presence. Okay, so in this case, I, I think that yes, that's the transformation of the state structure after the war was important in order to, to give much stress to the minority problems, to the minority questions, which were clearly aggravated by the, uh, the growth of state politics in ordinary life and so schemes of social assurance, the, uh, the, the rights deriving from the status of citizenship, which for example, were not so much uh, identified in the old imperial uh, context. So I think that, yes, it's the idea of the imagined communities that began to be more, concrete uh, and no more imagined after 1918 and the uh, consolidation of uh, national state structures and politics. Thank you, Christopher. Yeah, just to, to add on to that, I mean, I think that's the kind of line that I would go along with as well that I think especially, I mean, after the war, but during the war, right, the state is taking on more responsibilities, um, especially in terms of things like social welfare, um, or trying to at least if it's not doing so, but there's more claims being placed in the state and the state is essentially accepting the claims and failing often. 
Um, and then it comes out of the war and, and it, across the interwar period. I mean, I think it's also right to see the state as something that is expanding. Um, but then once again, I think a lot of the, the, the right to, you know, to have benefit from the state, the right to participate in many, circum in many circumstances, uh, you know, as a state employee then is tied to, is tied to national issues. It's tied to issues of belonging to a certain, uh, you know, ethno-cultural community. And so, I mean, I think that is a kind of interesting way to look at it, that it's, it's, Partly, um, it part, it's, part, it's not just a, a minority thing, but it's partly um, kind of who has access then to the state and who is, um, who is also extended the basically ability to participate in the state that is something that becomes a main arena for conflict.